Alright, welcome back students. We're going to talk about today Campus 14 through 18, Dante's Sphere of Mars and Dante's Paradiso. This might be part one of part two because frankly speaking we have a lot of material to get through here and I do intend to get to at the very least the end of this lecture tomorrow but also uh, onto Sphere 6, Jupiter. And so let us raise our eyes now to this quote here. From this site, this is how we enter Mars, my eyes recovered strength to raise themselves, and I saw I had been translated with my lady alone to a higher blessedness. I saw clearly that I had risen higher by the glancing smile of the star, which seemed to me redder than ordinary. 1482 to 87. So again, we notice that once we look at Beatrice, she becomes more beautiful. We are immediately transported to a new place, suggesting that what happens that transitions us between the spheres is some sort of learning that clears up our perceptions of what is. And the clear, clearer our sight is, the more beautiful the things around us are. And I can say you, to you as somebody of some amount of learning, if not too much, that it is certainly true that the more that I learn about this world, the more beautiful it is. And I can certainly say that if you have not watched Blue Planet before with David Attenborough as the uh, commentator, you definitely should. You can see some of the beauty in this world. Very, very beautiful sorts of stuff. But it has little to do with Mars. So let's talk about this place. So this is Fear 5 of 10 of Heaven or Paradiso. And what sort of people are here? Holy warriors or crusaders. Something interesting to note about crusaders is that what one would offer to a crusader in order to get them to fight would be not only money, but also um, an abdication of sin or a removal of sin. Whatever one did while on a holy crusade was immediately forgiven. So if one dies fighting against, say, the Saracens, uh, or they, uh, what the... <laughs> If one died fighting for the Holy Land, or ancient Catholic, or medieval Catholics versus medieval Muslims, the idea was that a soul would not have to go through purgatory at all, but would get to go straight to heaven. So divine was one's purpose. And we will meet an individual who is subject to that idea, who, who benefited from that idea, and it will be the great-great-grandfather of Dante Cacciaguida, who will talk about being the root from the tree, that has its roots in the sky. Very interesting. As if, as if humans are part of a family tree that comes down from heaven. Very interesting idea. And so, we have hints of Aeneas' conversation with Anchises in this sphere. Recall that in uh, Canto 6 of Virgil's Aeneid, Aeneas takes a road down into the underworld. And in the underworld, he actually has a female guide, just like Dante with Beatrice. He then chooses to go to Elysium rather than Tartarus. Heaven, just like Dante, is now in heaven rather than simply in hell. And there he speaks to his father, Anchises, who had recently died about a year before then. Just as Dante now, in heaven, will talk to the root to his leaf. Will talk to his great-great-grandpa. And just as Anchises told Dante not about the past, or excuse me, told Aeneas not about the past, but about the future, his descendants that would be Romans, all the way down to Julius Caesar and Octavian Caesar. So does Cacciaguida tell to Dante what his future will be? 
And as we know in 1302, what is it that will be happening to Dante that will set the course of his life and give him the opportunity to write this divine comedy? He will be exiled. And that is precisely what Cacciaguida will tell him. And that is, I think, uh, a very interesting consideration to have because, of course, Dante is in heaven and all the spirits in heaven are perfectly what with their place there. Who can recall this? Even back to the moon. Perfectly satisfied. That's right. That's right. And so do they have anything to worry about anymore? No. And yet, in the place of truth, Dante will see his future. And will it be something that will cause him happiness or sadness? Sadness, of course. And so what does that tell you about the truth? <clears throat> that the truth only causes pleasure and happiness? Or that some truths are also very much bitter? And that is a bitter pill to swallow is an expression that we have that Dante will have to. And in fact, he has a very famous quote where he says that the, uh, the I think it's the arrow that is foreseen strikes uh, softer than that which comes from nowhere. Something that comes out from left field, something that is totally unexpected and unknown, unknown, as Donald Rumsfeld would have called it, uh, those seem to hit one harder than that which one can see coming. A very interesting idea. In any case, what is the theme of this sphere? The theme is... How does conflict or suffering produce harmony? And in fact, the symbol of this sphere is very much tied to that notion. It is a cross, and it's the so-called holy cross. Just a couple interesting things to tell you geometrically about a cross is that it's two lines. A line is an infinite, uh, is an inf a line is that which has uh, infinite breadth or infinite length but no breadth, I believe. And just like a point is that which has no breadth or length. I, I believe that is the correct Euclidean uh, definition. I can look that up for you. In any case, two lines together that intersect produce four right angles and are themselves intersection of two eternal things. And so the idea of the cross or Dante must mean that the cross is a symbol for humans. In the same way that a human is also a combination of two eternal things. What are those two eternal things? Well, Dante's been talking about this since the Purgatorio. One's human nature and one's divine nature. And I want you to understand what this means. Because if you are human, you are material, you are an animal. That means you can feel emotions and you can definitely what? Out. Feel pain. Animals can feel emotions and feel pains. However, for Dante, they would not have our divine nature. That would mean that for humans, we, they don't have our prefrontal cortex that allows us to see the future. Now, the fact that we are animal or material and can feel pain, plus the fact that we can imagine the future, means that we can feel what? That no other creature ever has experienced, and we can choose to do it. I feel pain now. I feel pain in the future. I can see that I'm going to feel pain in the future. I start to water. I start to suffer. What humans can do that no other creature can do is they can consciously recognize that they feel pain and that they will feel pain in the future. And what we can do, which Dante considers divine, and I would certainly say is something that a draft cannot do, is we can choose to suffer for something that is what to us especially if we consider it more what to, than we are. Stronger is good. 
valuable, more important. We can choose to suffer for that which we think is important. And I mean, something you may well want to ask about your other teachers is, what do they spend their days doing? For whom do they suffer? For whom do they spend their life's blood and toil? Is it for you? And does that mean that they think you, as the future, are more important even than they? Which is an interesting idea. And I do think that that is what the idea behind this cross is in Dante's Paradiso. And so harmony is produced only through struggle and effort. I want you, I want you like Dolores Umbridge making Harry Potter write a scar into his hand to scar this on your minds. Harmony is not natural for humans. As you know, through your readings of the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and this, humans are very much capable of conflict with each other. It's about the easiest thing in the world. Agamemnon and Achilles, Menelaus and Paris, Odysseus and Eurylochus, Odysseus later and Antinous and Eurymachus, the suitors, and then their families, Aeneid and, or Aeneas and Turnus, Aeneas and Juno. Conflicts are easy to indulge in. Very easy to start, very hard to finish, though of course we know from the Iliad. What takes real work is harmony. Easy to produce a cacophony of terrible violin playing if I just hand a bunch of unskilled violinists violins. Much, much more difficult to harmoniously play a song then in relation with someone else harmoniously playing a slightly different set of notes that then work together. Harmony takes effort and struggle is the idea here. Very good. All right, so Mars the Living Cross. Here's a question. You don't need to write this. I want you to look at the art while I say this. These are three different renditions of a cross. One very beautiful, Gustave Dore. One all the way to the right, William Blake. One in the middle, sort of a primitivist aspect. We call it primitivist because it's not as sophisticated as the others. It's far more like sprites, like something you would see on a very uh, simple game on your uh, cell phone. But here's a, here's a question I just want you to sit with while you stare at these images. Question about the cross. Is it a symbol of, and perhaps we've already answered this, the intersection of the divine nature and human nature in one place? Is it? What do we think so far? Yes, yes. That of human consciousness. Is it not then a symbol of willingly suffering? For it is through consciousness that we do. You can suffer because you can envision a future in which you are feeling what? Pain. Very good. And that makes you suffer. And to some extent, people think that that's what depression is. Depression does seem to be a pain condition. Like people are more susceptible to feeling pain because they have lower serotonin levels. That's what SSRIs are for if you ever hear about those when you're older in any case but part of it seems to be thinking that what will never happen good things the bad things that are happening now will never stop happening and that is the element that is really really difficult to deal with all right and so thus consciousness orders its environment makes harmonious but also suffers because of it in fact we suffer in order to produce this harmony. In fact, that was something that two of the students at our at one of our meetings yesterday said. They said, you know, during this process that we've been going through with the teachers, um, it's been really interesting because we realized just how much work they do outside of the classroom. We had no idea what all they did to 
put into this uh, into their curricula and all the additional professional responsibilities they have. And I thought that was very interesting. Um, it takes work to produce harmony. It is not something that is easy to do. You can see that in people who dance very effectively, people who do incredible martial arts, people who play musical instruments. Do they just wake up one day and do those things? Or do they practice endlessly with that goal in mind? Right, exactly. And that is the goal of, I would say, the ultimate symphony, which is our society. All right, quote here. And I want you to look very closely at this because this is very odd. So those starry bands composed in the depths of Mars, the venerable sign which diameters crossing at right angles make in a circle. That's a very weird way of saying there's a cross. Lines 100 to 102 and 14. All right, and so let's get into this. Next couple slides, very informative, full of information. This star is redder than ordinary. Makes perfect sense to us. Make sure you're writing. Beatrice becomes more lovely again, 76 to 87. The souls form two lines which interconnect at the center, and then I have a little arrow here pointing at this cross. Two crosses meeting at a center point. Who knows where that center point would be with two lines? I suppose it could be anywhere since they're infinite in length. Bless you. And it forms, I believe, four right angles around the center. Yes. And so an odd claim made in 103 to 105 is that Christ shines in the center. And so what Dante seems to be meaning here is the symbol of what Christ is, is the embodiment of a God in man. Well, the embodiment of a God in man would mean the embodiment of a conscious being in an animal, which would mean a conscious animal on earth that chooses to suffer for something more important than itself. And that does seem to be how Dante is using this symbol, and that doesn't seem to be wrong either. And that does seem to be exactly what is unique about humans. That is why we are called homo sapiens, wise animals. We are the only creatures that can be wise, because we are the only creatures that have what? Consciousness or prefrontal cortexes that are developed to the, to the degree that ours are. And some people do say that the reason we develop prefrontal cortexes on top of our motor, motor cortexes and our sensory cortexes is so that we could visualize things to do in the future that we didn't actually do to run simulations so that we would die less often. Which makes perfect sense because what do you spend most of your day doing, especially when you're supposed to be listening? Just imagining stuff, right? It's very interesting. In any case, that means, this means, with this Christ shining at the center for Dante, that Christ, or the same idea or truth, joins these people together. That's another way to interpret this cross. That's a very interesting idea. That there is some sort of, there is something that joins man together, which is more powerful than any other connecting force. And whether that is a specific idea, like the idea of charity, or whether that is the experience of suffering is a very interesting question. In fact, current, current neuroscientists do believe that the best way to produce bonding between humans is to put them in a bad situation together where they share a goal of getting out of it. And that makes a lot of sense because if you're in a bad situation with somebody else and you want to get out of it, what are you going to have to do with that person immediately? Cooperate, Cooperate which means you have to share what with them? What is the basis of cooperation? You must what the person first. Not just like. Not just agree with. 
trust. Very good. You must trust the person. That's right. And so it produces immediate trust. Very good. Very good. Very good. The hymn in Mars, recall, that not only do these spheres have a shape, but they have a song. These songs are going to get more and more indecipherable. We're going to hear a little bit of this one. We're going to hear a little bit of the one in Jupiter, and then we're going to, it's going to be silent and Saturn. As things become more and more beautiful, they're going to be more and more unbearable. And again, just to reference Blue Planet for the second time uh, today, because I was just watching the Coral Reefs one yesterday with sea anemones and all sorts of beautiful tropical fish, I described one of those sea anemones as mind-numbingly beautiful. It was helping me to understand how this Paradiso is so often described by Dante, who says, oh, his words will not be good enough or great enough in order to convey the beauty of this place, and his mind not great enough to decipher the indecipherable. This place is so full of superlatives. In any case, this hymn, we only hear a couple bits of it, but apparently they are representative. They are arise and conquer. Conquer makes perfect sense, because what sorts of people are amongst the red, Martian, conflict-laden Sphere of Mars people. What sort of people are here? Crusaders, holy warriors, people who fight. Conquer makes sense. Arise. Arise is interesting. Arise recalls to me the idea of waking up or of being called to arms or of having a trumpet call. You do know that that's why trumpets wake people up in sort of summer camp military environments. That the trumpet calls you to wake up and it calls you to battle. In fact, um, the angel Gabriel, who is sort of the Christianized version of Hermes, is supposed to carry a trumpet that then sounds the apocalypse, if you ever read Revelation, which is very interesting. So there is a connection between music and conquest. And in fact, battle music is something that's existed for all time. Do you know which, which very primitive instrument, which my father actually played, uh, is associated with battle? Because it sets the march. The drums. You beat the drums. And even today, do we like to drop a dope beat if we want to feel especially conflict-laden? Do we like deep bass if we want to think, I wouldn't say sophisticated thoughts, but more bellicose thoughts? For instance, if I'm going to a football game and I want to get raw, 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 do I listen to some Mozart with no beat? Or do I listen to something with a heavy beat? Any of y'all ever been to a football game before? What sort of music do you hear? Yeah, so often bass guitars, often just bass drums too. Exactly, usually something pretty heavy. Something that gets you sort of emotional at a lower level. Uh, something that gets you maybe even a little bit angry and pumped up, excited. Very good, very good. Well, that seems to be the sort of music that's going on here. It's like trumpeting with a rise and conquer. You might imagine that it's like an awesome rock concert or rap concert, whichever gets you hype, to use the vernacular. And so the canto's final line is this. Because as one rises, paraphrase, the holy joy becomes clearer. The truth of this cross, this fear, this heaven becomes clearer, the clearer one's mind becomes. So that was our hypothesis at the beginning of this canto. Is it the case that in this heaven, when you learn something, that means your sight becomes clearer. Something in front of you becomes unobscured. And when you see things for how they really are, does that make them more beautiful? And the answer here seems to be yes. And 
The answer our culture gives to you seems to be yes, too. Because the art by which we investigate reality in order to understand it in a clearer way, we call, not an art at all, we call it what? You go to this class every day. We call it science. Right. And science is the method of investigation by which we discover more truths in a clearer way about reality. Why do we do that? Because we pursue the things that we love. Apparently something about reality, something about learning, something about truth beckons to us and is beautiful to us. It draws us towards it in the same way that if I had a beautiful red flower, you all might be tempted to do what? As I held it in front of you. Sort of lean towards it, right? Lean towards it in order to get a better what? To get a better look and possibly to smell it as well. You would want to gather the information from it precisely because it was what? Beautiful. And if I held a rotting, dead skunk in front of you, you what did what did several of you just do? Did you back away from it? It's almost like you're repelled by what things? Gross, ugly, disgusting things, right? But you are compelled by beautiful things. And apparently, even though it can be bitter, the truth is a beautiful thing. Interesting. All right. All right, all right. This is going to be the last long slide, so... And you do not need to write the middle part, which is the quote. You don't need to write the quote, my science students, my science students. All right. Silence is then imposed on this sphere. It wasn't silent, but it will be made silent. Ooh, somebody's going to talk and they're going to tell us something. A comet-like soul bursts forth. And that's so interesting. The very smart reference of Dante. You know he knows his Virgil, just as we know our Virgil in the Aeneid. And in fact, the fact that he would, he would mention a comet, well, that, that has two correlates in the Aeneid. The first, of course, is from Book 2, when Anchises is refusing to leave Troy, even though it is falling, saying that the gods would have saved Troy if they wanted to save Anchises. But you recall that he saw a portent, a flame above the head of Ascanius. That's a symbol for seeing hope in the future, of course. But that's what convinced him. He saw a flame above the head of Ascanius. That means he saw a comet in the sky that provided him hope for the future. But perhaps you recall from last year also me telling you that moment in Virgil comes from a real moment in reality. When during the funeral of Julius Caesar, a comet showed itself in the air above. Very interesting how these celestial phenomena uh, seem to... Uh, accumulate around the deaths of preeminent figures. In fact, supposedly there was an earthquake at the death of Christ. That's not, of course, celestial, but supposedly there was also a... Does anybody know what happened? Supposedly, yes? An eclipse. Yes, darkness, an eclipse. So a comet for Julius Caesar, and then just a few years later, 50, 60, 60 years, something like that, uh, a very similar figure for a divine figure, or excuse me, for a sacred figure rather than a secular figure, a divine king and a worldly king. Very good. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So, the fact that this man shows up like a comet means to us that he is a prefiguration of hope, even though he will bring us bitter truths, and that he is connecting himself with Anchises and Julius Caesar. He is a figure, he is a paternal figure. And so what will he tell us? The truth or lies? Truth. 
And another interesting thing to say to you here. One point that Dante seems to be making. Recall that in hell, who is it that speaks the language of Lucifer? Who is it that lies? Is it just Lucifer? Or is it every figure in hell? Every figure in hell, of course. And so, if heaven is the opposite of hell, and the language of truth is spoken in heaven, then who speaks the truth in heaven? Every angel or soul that we meet. And we've only met regular souls so far, no angels, nothing nothing interesting, nothing, no sort of theological or mythological creatures yet. If the person who tells you the truth is, is hmm, molded on the idea of fatherhood or guidance, then each one of these characters that we meet in heaven is in some way supposed to be representative of someone that guides you. It's almost as if the image of the divine that Dante has, or the image of God, is the image not of a specific person, but of any person in the role of guiding you towards the truth. Almost as if the process of guiding someone towards the truth is, for Dante, the most divine thing possible, because when you guide someone towards the truth, are you trying to produce additional conflict or harmony in your space? Harmony, of course, because you are sharing your what with them? Perspective. Your perspective, right? You are conveying to them information that allows for you both to stand on the same level, level or ground, right? Precisely so. And so, the Anchises connection is directly made in Latin. It's actually not even translated in your work. It is, O sanguis mail o super infusa gratia dei sicut tibi qui bis umquam coile janua reclusa. You can see a couple words in there that you know. Coile there, you can see celestial in there, that means related to the sky. Janua, add a J in there. Janua reminds you of which month that just passed? January. It is their door for, or it is their word for door. In Latin, and so Janus is the is the god of he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the god of what's and what's, beginnings and ends. Very good, because a doorway closes off one possibility and opens up another. Very good. And so what that Latin quote means is, "Oh my blood." So we know this is a family member of Dante. Oh, super infused grace of God, as to you whom have ever the gates of heaven been twice opened. And so that's a really powerful thing for this Cachaguida, this father-like figure, this heavenly figure to say to Dante, because he is, of course, descending to Dante. And to this day, we talk of cities that we hold in lower regard than the cities we live in. We say, you're going to go down to that city. Whereas if it's a nicer city, how do you get there? Regardless of geographical relation to you, you go up to it. That's right. And you can think about even your own language, how you say that. I'm going to go down to this place. I'm going to go up to this place. In any case, the soul is coming down to Dante you would think that he would be held in higher regard than Dante since he is a soul in heaven and, of course, a holy warrior, a crusader, who is assumed immediately into heaven. That said, he notices that Dante has a distinction above any other human that has ever existed except for, at least in Dante's conception, one. There is a story that this St. Paul figure, he wrote most of the New Testament after the Gospels, that he got a vision of heaven as well, that he had some prophetic vision of it, that he was allowed insight into it and then came back down, which is, of course, a claim you would make about somebody that had ridden 
the holy book of the Christians. It, I, how else would somebody write it? There's a very similar sort of claim um, about Muhammad meeting the angel Gabriel and writing the Quran as well. And, of course, that is the claim that Homer and Virgil make. Who tells them their stories? Themselves or some god called a muse? Right. If you want to say you're writing holy words, where do the holy words need to come from? Somewhere holy. Some sort of heaven, Olympus sort of place. Somewhere where the truth resides, which is not the world. That's why you can trust it. That's why you can trust it. And in any case, Dante is given a... You might say this is an even more important admission than his admission into the epic poets in Canto, what's it, four or five in the Inferno? I four, excuse me. It was five. That's where Francesca is. So now since Paul has a man been twice received into heaven, there are echoes of Anchises in Book Six, line eight thirty-five or so, which refers to Julius Caesar as Sanguis Maus, so in the Aeneid. Um, Anchises refers to Julius Caesar is my blood. In fact, we still have that word sanguis. We call someone sanguine, who is uh, not angry, but I forget. It's a. We used to have a theory in the medical profession of the four humors. You could you could have yellow bile, black bile, red bile, and some other bile too. And if you were sanguine, I think that meant you had a pretty good personality, rather than if you were choleric, which means you were angry all the time, or melancholy, which means you were sad all the time. Very interesting ideas. All this is the same. Contribuida is related to Dante as his great-great-grandfather. And just since we have limited time, this will be our last slide of the day. So focus in close. I'll say some interesting stuff, and then we'll go. Contribuida. Now that everything's silent, except for Mr. Schmidt, Contribuida begins by explaining that Dante thinks he is reading his mind. Dante's going to be doing a lot of looking at Beatrice, looking at Contribuida, Wanting to say things, but being sort of ashamed to say things. He's so ignorant and he doesn't want to bother these souls. The souls will actually start literally saying to him, You do not add anything to our existence. We know everything. We know everything that's going to happen. The only reason we talk to you is because we are so whatable. Charitable. Yeah, we love to give. Which is funny, because is that something Mr. Schmidt says to you all the time? <laughs> I get a lot more out of that than just what Kachawita gets from Dante, that's for sure. And I do it unrelated to you all. So, very good. You might also say, but you do it to receive pay. And I say, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> that's fair. All right, very good. But why does Cachalita take special joy in seeing Dante? Well, Dante heard, before Dante opened his mouth, what his will or desire was. Oh, yes, sorry. These are two different points. Why does Cachalita take special joy in seeing Dante? Obviously, because Dante is related to him. He is his descendant. It's sort of like if you, I mean, I can just imagine this myself. When I think about my own death, I do think that if I could live in a place with a celestial TV, it'd be really cool to be able to check up on people that lived after I was alive and just sort of watch what they were doing. Of course, I'd be yelling at the TV half the time because would people be acting right? They'd be making all sorts of wrong decisions. I'd be like, don't do that. I'd be like, I'd be like somebody in a horror movie at a theater yelling at the screen. Don't you go down that hallway. You're going to die. In any case, in any case, so Dante heard before Dante, and this is evidence for the fact that Cachuita looks like he can read Dante's mind, heard before Dante opened his mouth what his will or desire was. And so it makes me wonder, oh, it should say Beatrice heard 
before Dante opened his mouth. That's why it looks so weird to me. Very good. My question is, because this is a hypothesis I really want to nail down over the next three spheres, remember the hypothesis that Beatrice is the mind of Dante and that she is directed towards the truth because you interpret the truth with your what? With your mind. Right, exactly so. How is it that she hears before Dante opens his mouth if she's not inside of his head? It's almost like she is his capacity not simply for thought, but for self-reflection as well. In any case, Dante asks her for the soul's name. The soul says that he, that Dante is the leaf to his root. I want you to think about that metaphor. If you are a root and I am a leaf, so their roots, they're kind of under the ground, right? Are they the beginning or the end of, temporally speaking, of a plant? They're the beginning. They start underground just like the little seed does. Then you grow up a little what? Mm -hmm. Stalk or trunk. Very good. And then you develop some what? Mm -hmm. Up at the top? Branches. Branches. Very good. And then on those branches, mm -hmm. what develops? And then fall off. Mm -hmm. Leaves. Just as the generation of leaves are, so are the generations of man. Who said that last year in the Iliad? In book six. While he's trying not to get killed by Diomedes. Yes. Focus, very good. Which God said that to another God when he didn't want to fight against him. Yes? Apollo, Apollo very good, very good. Excellent, excellent. You're remembering your roots well. Well, Kachaguida then takes some time to explain to us that he came from a good time in Florence. It wasn't always like how it is, just like the Catholic Church wasn't always like it is, just like the Franciscans wasn't always like it is, just like the Dominicans weren't always like they are, according to Dante. Apparently, we're really finding out that once you found an institution, and you leave it as the founder, what inevitably happens to it over time, which actually the sociologists know happens too now. It becomes corrupt eventually. So he came from a time when Florence was great, like when Anchises lived in Troy, unlike poor Aeneas, unlike poor Dante who gets exiled. So Dante, like Aeneas, must be in exile who founds, who founds a new pure institution or a new way of being. Is he also a holy warrior? We'll pick up here tomorrow.